morning. It's Terry Edom, the author of The End of Fossil Fuel Insanity, calling from Canada. Thank you very much for joining us here today at the Crude Life. And so glad you could join us. The man, the myth, the legend, the author, the writer, the blogger, because he has a book called The End of the Fossil Fuel Insanity, which is available at Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Of course, you can check out his writing at the BOE Report. And then, of course, he has his blog, Public Energy Number One. And he's from Canada, so he understands socialism much better than me, the capitalist. And, you know, we, we, should, we should probably have a show called Cowboys and Socialism or Cowboys and Canadians or something like that. I don't know. But. Sure. So, yeah, uh, kind of go ahead. Sorry. I say we straddle the fence. I'm in Alberta here, so all of the a lot of the business-minded people are drawn to the oil patch because that's where things happen, or they used to happen, anyways. And uh, yeah, so the socialism is more on the fringes, but it's here and it's coming there. Well, and that's why I wanted to kind of ask you uh, about this article. That first of all, I've never heard of this Jacobin news site, and according to our pre. Uh, interview conversation you hadn't either so this this news organization that it came from we have no idea its credibility or anything along those lines isn't that correct that's correct sounds sounds true by me okay with that said uh i skimmed it and then i went back and i read it and then i went okay i gotta send this to terry edom because this sounds like something that him he up in canada might actually understand a little bit better than I did. And then, lo and behold, later that evening, you sent me an email. Whoa, where'd you get this? <laughs> so, But a lot of good points were made in that article. So uh, just yeah. to kind of set the table a little bit, the article we're talking about has to do with nationalizing oil in the United States. And a couple of years ago, that would have been crazy. But a year ago, I started noticing some signs and then I noticed in April, uh, Art Berman, who's a pretty pretty good name in energy analysis, he started talking about that there's going to see pockets of the energy industry, oil and gas, nationalized by the end of the year. He said this in April publicly. So the conversation's happening more and more. So, Terry, I wanted to bring you on, uh, talk a little bit about just the whole social aspect of it. I'd like to combat with the capitalism side of things. You're in Canada. What exactly is your oil and gas industry like? Because I've I've just always grown up believing Canada is a socialist country. So talk to me about the industry there. Well, right now it's on its knees. And so that's the, the, the primary viewpoint is from the ground level. Maybe we're in the gutter is a better way to put it, looking at everybody's ankles when they walk past. It, it's tough times here. The the commodity price, we never really recovered from the commodity price crash of 2014-15 when oil went down. That hammered the industry. The um, oil sands have been, which is a big engine of, of production up here, that's been hammered globally. Um, it's, a, it's a fantastic, huge resource, but it just we lost the PR battle on that one. We uh, can't get pipelines built to tide water, so we're we're forced to sell our product into the middle of the North American continent, so it gets lower prices. The the uh, fracking revolution has kind of hit up here too, where you used to have a lot of companies um, doing things, drilling vertical wells, and, and all the associated things. Now, now a lot more production comes out of a single well or a single well pad, so there's less drilling crews, and and, and just on and on and on. And then and then this the the 
the desire to crush the whole industry over the past couple of years has really just kind of laid the boots to everybody. So, but we've we've had depressed commodity prices for quite some time, and, and yeah, the, there's no capital that'll come to Canada. So, so uh, how that ties into the socialist aspect? It's been pretty. The oil patch is pretty freewheeling and pretty capitalist, which is what drew me to it. Um, and it's that heart is still beating, but barely. So, how, do, how about the the mineral leases? Does the government own them? Do the private citizen owns them? Own them? How does that work? The, the majority of it is owned by the uh, the governments, the provincial governments uh, own own the royal own the um, mineral rights, and then they they lease them out. Um, it's very similar to an ownership thing, except that ultimately the government does own them. So we pay royalties every month on our production. There's not much freehold. There's some of it, uh, but very little. So, so uh, the government tinkers with royalty rates depending on how much uh, resources they want extracted. And the, the province of Alberta has been somewhat at odds with other provinces because it's been um, it has such a big resource that it really wants it developed, and that's the way it's always been for the past hundred years, probably. And the other other provinces, not so much. So we kind of have a bit of a different. Um, goal here in terms of in that resource extraction other parts of the country have other resources that they want to extract but oil is in the crosshairs now so on, on one hand i guess you, you have a little bit of government control or a lot of government control when it comes to the mineral ownership and disbursement of the minerals and then on the other side you, uh, from a regulation side too it sounds like there's a lot of um, control from the government side of things too at the marketplace is that a correct statement yeah, I'd say that's pretty correct. Yeah, we have we have pretty stringent um, guidelines and environmental, and then we get the, both the the provincial and the federal governments involved in various aspects. Sort of similar to you down there, I'm sure with state and federal regulations, especially around water bodies and that sort of thing. So um, it's it's a mishmash of regulation, but there's a lot of regulation. Some of it's for great causes, good reasons, wildlife preservation or habitat preservation. It's just that it's uh, when you layer everything on it. Just every year, just the challenges get that much harder. So, and then the social aspect of it just gets uh, is another pile on. So, yeah. Well, I I just wanted to kind of lay some context a little bit because that's that's the industry you've known. Yet the capitalism part of it kind of drew you to it, which means that there's still some, you know, some pockets of creativity for the, for a capitalist to go out in the the oil sands or the oil industry and kind of have that itch scratch, it sounds like. At least that, that still exists out in Canada, huh? Uh, it does, yeah. There's, it's, it's less so There's because it's just not the jobs and the opportunities aren't here. It used to be 10, 20, 30 years ago, guys would just come here, or women too, and then they would just start a business and they could be up and running and your success was determined by how hard you wanted to work and now the opportunities just aren't, aren't there so much. So it's, uh, it's a bit more... Uh, yeah, it's a different, it's a change environment. I was going to say that the, the uh, from a global perspective, we kind of get one thing that we do here, and I think it's the same with you down there. We kind of get caught up in what we see as the world. Like the, most of the world's petroleum reserves are held by national oil companies. So they're the, the socialist aspect of it, if you want to talk about in terms of uh, control of mineral resources, most of the world's oil supplies are in the hands of governments too. So it's um, we're, we're kind of the outliers in a sense here at the United States and Canada or the U S particularly, but. Well, that was the one thing where, you know, we, you and I had a conversation last October, I remember about how 
I predicted by the end of 2020 to possibly 2021, you might only have a dozen companies that control 90% of the global oil supply. And I thought it was going to be because of a 16-year-old girl. But then you have the COVID happen. Then you have Russia and Saudi Arabia doing their OPEC thing. And that was all just accelerated a lot of what people were starting to see last year. And that's why this whole nationalizing conversation it's so bizarre to me that it keeps popping up in so many different areas. And now with this one here, this uh, website we've never heard of. So you you called it possibly like some sort of communist website. I thought it was like some Che Guevara uh, disciple website. I wasn't sure either, but I went, you know, there's still a lot of good points in here. And what they're bringing up is very sobering to read because there are things happening in the oil and gas industry that take a look at Alaska. Alaska's got pretty socialized oil. Uh, I, I think, as far as I know, the the state owns the oil. The people own the oil, and there's really only two companies that drill: BP and Shell. So, right. and, and it, yeah, I mean, I would say the majority of it. You might have a few others that it might not be a hundred percent, but the majority of the drilling is done by two companies. So I always looked at that as kind of like, okay, if, if the industry becomes socialized like that, that's what's going to happen. And if the global industry becomes socialized like it's going, nationalized, you can call it that if you want, you're going to have that handful of, of companies. And it's happened in so many other industries that it scares me that it could happen in the most capitalistic industry there still is, which is the oil and gas industry. So just talk to me about that article, some points that you saw that were a little bit um, peculiar, I guess, and maybe stood out a little bit. To me, it was the consolidation aspect of it, the way he talked about how there's possibly 70% of 6,000 drilling companies that could go bankrupt. Just things like that were signs of the consolidation of my prediction last October. So uh, just I'll, I'll hand the baton off to you and shut up now. Sure, sure. Well, it, it's a big article. It covers a lot of a lot of things, and it does come at it from a socialist perspective. I'm just reading the author's uh, credentials at the bottom. He's, he's some associated with something that's yeah, certainly not a business enterprise. But huh. anyway, what, what, so, so right off the top, what's interesting about the title of the article is it says there may be no choice but to nationalize oil and gas and renewables, too. So there, there's a lot of um, the smaller aspects of like what companies might come out of this. Most companies are in debt and, and nobody wants to loan money or give equity to, to energy companies anymore, or to oil and gas companies. So the, the prospects of bankruptcy have increased for a lot of them. And you're right, maybe there might only be a handful of bigger ones that, that survive or, or, or smaller ones if they can get by in a conventional sense, just uh, eking out a margin on whatever fields they have and just keeping them going. So it, it is going to look different in that regard, and it might just fall into the, the hands of the, the bigger players. What, what was really interesting about the article was that it's, it's obviously not in, uh, pro-fossil um, fuels, but the, the fact that they're saying that we, we might have to nationalize the whole works um, in order to meet climate goals and I thought that was really interesting. Like they're talking about uh, nationalizing oil and gas and renewables, so wind and solar and the electrical grids and everything. And I, I in one way, I think that that if these these decarbonization goals that organizations have, that say the like the IPCC, the climate change committees around the world, the United Nations are saying, if we want to meet these 
these temperature goals by, by, by um, we have to limit CO2 emissions. And that means we have to get off of fossil fuels within whatever deadline they pick. Uh, to me, that's just an impossibility. It's just not going to happen. But the only way that these, with maybe within the next hundred years it could happen, the only way that these people are starting to realize, I mean, they've been at this for 15 years, these climate activists, or 20 years, and nothing's changed. The global emissions go up all the time, every year. Even with this COVID thing, there's a drop. Now consumption has bounced back to near where it was. So they can see the writing on the wall. And these guys were a little bit more clear-sighted than, than most people in that camp. They just said, like, we are not going to be off fossil fuels for a very long time, which is a very uh, startling admission for for somebody that that's so anti-petroleum. Um, but they're they're quite open and, and honest about it, and they're correct. And I think that they're right if, that if they want to try and get their goals, the only way they're, they're going to the, the only shot they have at it is to nationalize everything. Now, that doesn't mean they're going to get there because you know what happens when stuff gets nationalized. Then it's <laughs> then you can say goodbye to efficiency and you can say goodbye to um, the, the productivity gains that we get in the private sector. And, and it would be just a complete fiasco, in my opinion. But at the end of the day, it would mean that it would just cement in the reliance on oil and gas for that much longer because they're talking about trying to uh, overthrow a system and the, the hydrocarbon system which keeps everything going and they acknowledge that too they just say that 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 uh, fossil fuels are so embedded in our way of life that we can't get them off them easy their their, their solution is to nationalize everything and then make it happen um and and i i think that that would be it was interesting that their acknowledgement of the reliance on fossil fuels that was the biggest thing out of this is that they were so clear about that which is what we say in the oil patch too and i think from the capitalist perspective, what we say is we agree that we're not going to be off them for a long time, so let us do the best job we can of producing them. Yes, we'll clean up, we'll clean up whatever we have to, we'll reduce our emissions, we'll capture methane, we'll stop flaring, where we should be agreeing to those things. Those are all good things to be good targets. And then we'll, we'll just uh, make it better. And these, these guys are saying that, no, you can't make it better. The government will have to. And, and, it, and you can leave that to the audience to decide if they think the government runs things better than private enterprise. But I know where I'd cast my vote. Well, and that's the thing that is really shocking to me because I was always used to the oil and gas industry being on the side of um, private enterprise. And there's more and more signs, you know, in America that they, they're, they're looking for government intervention. And, you know, you got Matt Gallagher from Parsley talking about Railroad Commission could, should step in and start controlling production. And in my home state, the Bakken, their, their millions of dollars are being controlled right now for uh, cap and wells and, and creating a false marketplace. And, in fact, they've got now they're, um, they're using the oil and gas people to lobby for coal now so that the coal people can get federal dollars and, um, and, and create more of a, a stimulated economy yeah. for, for the fossil fuel well, industry. And, and that's, that, that, that's a whole different you know, conversation right there. But it, my, my point is, is that it's starting to happen where they're, they're yeah. becoming more and more reliant and the conversation's happening more and more of this type of uh, activity. Sorry, go ahead. Well, I was going to say that that that's it, it, that creeps in in many different ways. Um, like they're, they're just the patchwork of regulations, or the um, well, look look at the trouble you're having down there in the, the U.S. right now building new pipelines. Like um, was it the Atlantic Coast Pipeline? I think 
their backers, the gas pipeline, they had sunk billions of dollars into it. They just chose to walk away. They, they had approval for it. They had a Supreme Court 7-2 to two ruling saying, yes, you may proceed with building this. They were a long way down the road, and they just looked at their hurdles coming up ahead of them, environmental pressure and state um, fights, and they just said, oh, to hell with it, and they just walked away from the whole thing. And and that's that's happening more and more. So in some ways, that that's the socialist aspect creeping in in a, in a way that you don't, that's not outright ownership, but it's it's the state dictating um how 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 the development is going to occur now now people the, the the people on that side of the spectrum the left side of the spectrum would would look at that and go well no that was a company that just chose to walk away from a pipeline project that's their choice we've seen it up in canada here too where we we're going to build a, a pipeline to take oil from western canada to eastern canada where they need it because currently they import oil in eastern canada from places like saudi arabia which just blows everyone's mind up here but we couldn't get that pipeline built across the country because the government laid on such onerous regulations, emissions regulations, that the company just said, well, that's impossible. Like, no, nobody could meet that. And the government said, well, it's your choice. You can meet them or not. It's up to you if you want to build the pipeline or not. So they chose not to build it. So so that's not that's not outright ownership, but it's still government control of how it's going to develop. And and maybe, maybe in the States, maybe they want to see they want to see it all fall in the hands of 10 big organizations and then they can control them and work with them and tell them what they're going to do and, and measure development rather than having this flourishing um, uh, sector that we've had forever where, where the small guys go out and they try new things and they open up new areas and they experiment and they, they try and get rich and they make things work and some things don't and some do. That's the entrepreneurial aspect of it. And maybe they're just trying to snuff that out, which would be part of, a government mandate to um, to kind of oversee much easier the the whole industry. It's like the U.S. banking sector in a way, where they can they, there's a bunch of smaller banks, but when they want when the U.S. government wants something big to happen, they they call the big boys in the room, the big half dozen or so on Wall Street, and and then they kind of um, make things happen. Now nobody says that the banking industry is nationalized, but in some ways, it's it's like it's in the back pocket of government because they're, they they work together behind closed doors. Maybe that's what's going to happen here in the future on the oil and gas side. You bring up that Dominion uh, pipeline example on the East Coast there. And great points about how, you know, regulations and government intrusion can really shape and, and manage the marketplace in a lot of different ways. And I'd like to take that one step further before transitioning in, into the next thought, which is, we forgot to mention the next step of that, which is Warren Buffett came in and bought it like the next week. And that's another story. That, 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 that is more of how you get the one, two, three step there where you get the government intrusion and the managed marketplace of the socialism. And then all of a sudden, somebody with a deep pocket somewhere across the globe can just come in and buy it and sit on it for three years, five years, while everyone else hemorrhages money. I went through this with the internet. I went through this with the internet. I have seen in my professional career, my competition has been bailed out by the government four times. Four times. Now, I've survived three of the four recessions. One time in 2007, 8, 9, I lost my business. That was the publishing industry. That was the end. And I wasn't the only one that lost my business. It was... Trust me, it was everybody else. And the internet was the oh, yeah. worst. The internet was the worst investment I ever made in my life. 
Worst investment I ever made in my life. And everybody said I had to. I followed the herd, and it put me out of business. And I had to reinvent myself, go to go and work for somebody three years later, you know, went out and started the crude life and been doing that ever since. But um, the big boys, they get bailed out. They get bailed out. And at least in my lifetime, I've seen the same people get bailed out by the same, by, by the same politicians and the same elected officials because these guys have been there for 20, 30 years. So oh, yeah. it's just it's a constant cycle. Go ahead. Well, I'm just going to say that too, too big to fail is a very real concept. <clears throat> Excuse me. The, the, the little guys can come and go, and they, they do come and go, but the, the, <clears throat> the anchors of the industry, they're, they're, the government won't let them go away. So. No, and, you know, there, it's funny. There's this famous interview with Steve Jobs back in the uh, 90s, and he talked about the importance of a network. And I went back and I watched it last month and I went, okay, he wasn't talking about technology. He was actually talking about like a fraternity. That's what he was talking about is that network. And he's right because it, it, it was, it's the, you know, networking is just a modern, modern day word for good old boy, you know, club. And, and I've said for a long time, anybody who complains about a good old boys club is just jealous. And I'll be the first one to raise my hand because well, the good old boys club has been around since the last supper. So there ain't anybody who, who can say they didn't know about a good old boys club. You just got to get new friends. And I get that. That's fine. But, <laughs> but at the same time, that doesn't make a right. And it doesn't mean that, no. you know, the, the dishonesty doesn't mean it's okay. And a lot of that's happening, but sorry to uh, g- d- jump off the deep end there. I just got to stick up for the good old boys, even though I'm jealous of them. <laughs> well, yeah, you're right. I think that's how it's always worked too. And it's, it's on a global basis too. We've seen that with the, um, um, like 30, 40, 50 years ago, governments around the world wanted their oil and gas resources developed. So they invited the big guys in. They said they, they, they had auctions of rights. They said, come on in, develop these concessions. You will welcome you. We'll give you tax breaks. So that, that's how the world worked. And so if you want to talk about a full boys club. Then that was why the exons of the world are everywhere around the world. And the, and the big companies, and some of the smaller ones, or the intermediates, kind of got there too, but on a lesser scale for sure than the big guys. And then that just kind of waned over time. And now they've all turned against the oil and gas companies, and they're they're kind of protecting what they have, in in my estimation. So, well, I think you know, and and, and to be fair to the be fair to the oil companies, you know, they did that. That was by design. You know, that was by design. In fact, they got. I think in the eighties, there was those Exxon trials and that sort of thing, and it showed how. You know, basically, governments were creating suburbia. They were creating suburbia, and the only way they could create suburbia was with fossil fuel products and an infrastructure built on coal and fossil fuels. And in order to do that, they ba- and they, I think they got in trouble basically for like a legit conspiracy. I think that's one of the only legitimate conspiracies on record is the um, kind of the transition into suburbia and fossil fuels over the course of from the 1950s and 60s on type thing. And uh, yeah. as far as court well, ra- court records go and that sort of thing. Uh, go ahead. Yeah. There's always a matter of context in these things too. And, and when you're, uh, th- this is a macro level thing again, and it's not justifying any, any misdeeds that these uh, people may have, may have uh, done. But when, if you're, People forget too that for a long time the the search was for energy security. They they looked around the world. They said, "Where are we going to get our supplies from?" Like we're growing rapidly. We need to we need to secure supplies. That's one reason that 
the, the U.S. and Western countries have been so um, friendly with Saudi Arabia. Like, no matter what Saudi Arabia does, human rights-wise, or, or blowing up the World Trade Center, for crying out loud, they, we just went right back to them and said, no, it's okay, yeah, we, we, we're, still, we're still good, um, which is shocking, because that never happened anywhere else in the world. Anybody else that would have invaded the U.S. on U.S. soil would have been obliterated, but you look at the country with the most oil production at the time, kind of got a free pass for that. So it's um, uh, it, it, it's the 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 fight to secure energy supplies has been going on for a long time. And that went hand in hand with, like you said, the development of suburbia, and the and, and overall just the in, increase in in people's um, lifestyle and their ability to live long, healthy lives. Well, and, so, and and that's the point I wanted to bring up quick is that so often people can get caught up on the negatives and you know just kind of you know I brought up the conspiracy and all that other stuff, but. The, the bigger picture and the reason that it was allowed and the reason that people moved ahead with it is because people liked not living in mud shacks and people liked having vehicles that drove and people liked having safe bananas and, and pineapple come, you know, in middle America type. Thing. There was such an increase of quality of life that the average person was okay with some of the negatives that came with it. It's just this enablement and, and this, this uh, new, hey, I can freak out more than you can freak out society that we've enabled over the last 20 years that's really turned yeah. the world upside down. And that's what I'm concerned about with the energy industry, with the oil and gas industry, because you're right. They, now the conversation is about bringing them all together. That, 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 was, that, that was the swift move that this guy did in that article was – he, he brought them all in, and that was actually quite genius because now nobody can get mad at any of the other deals because it's all for one and one for all type thing. And I'm not, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm not a big proponent of that because personally, I would rather have uh, opportunity be enabled, but the direction that the oil and gas industry has been going and the way that a lot of the leaders are bringing it is they're starting to enable entitlement and they're starting to squelch opportunity and I don't like it. I don't like it at all. But in this article, I think, is, is more of kind of citing some more examples of that. But um, anyway, your turn to talk yeah, now. It's a bit, yeah, it's, it's a bit compounded on top of that, too, that, it, that there, there's, um, there, there's people have take everything for granted now. So they, uh, no, like you said, like three, two or three or four generations ago, people were ecstatic to get um, natural gas heat in their home or natural gas stove or... Um, whatever vehicles that they multiple vehicle family or multiple cars in a family, bigger houses, living in the suburbs with a yard, like people were really happy to have this stuff, and now it's just taken for granted. Now everybody just assumes, well, it's always there. We, we always have. Uh, why would I worry about heat? It's always there. Why would I worry about uh, food supplies? The grocery store is always full. So people take all this stuff for granted, and and at at the heart of it, it's all been brought to you by fossil fuels, and that they're cheap. So we built a system that keeps seven billion people alive, based on fossil fuels. And and now there's now now this new generation is is saying, hey, we can get rid of those fossil fuels. We don't need them because they're dirty, and let's just replace them with wind and solar. And um, and and they're acting on that. And and I think a lot of the energy sector has been saying, you're you're delusional. That that it does not happen like that. And they've been saying, yes, it does. Yes, it does. That, that's what was interesting about this article. Like, the, here's a quote from the, the author here. He said, 
The energy revolution that's required to reach climate targets poses a series of formidable economic and technical challenges that will require careful energy planning and be anchored in a, quote, public goods approach. If we want a low-carbon energy system, full public ownership is absolutely essential. So I think that this is a tipping point in a sense because these people are saying, oh, wait a minute, this, this energy transition isn't working like we said it was. And the only way we're going to get, they still want to get to the same place. And they're saying the government has to do everything because, because uh, we're not moving there fast enough. But what, they, what, they're, what they're ignoring is that, that we're, we're not moving fast enough because people want to keep living and they want to keep, they want secure, reliable energy. They don't want blackouts. They don't want to have to move to climates where it's warm. They don't want to uh, rely on intermittent power. And, and, and they just won't. And, and so, so it's like a rock and a hard place, these these um, activists are saying it's going to happen. So, so the socialist response is, okay, well, the only way we can make it happen is to for the government to take over everything and then literally make it happen. But it won't happen. Any any energy student can see that it's not going to happen. The, the, the transition to, to, to unwind the system that we have now that keeps 7 billion people alive and replace it, you, you, you can't replace, you couldn't replace the railroad system in the United States without 50 years of, of, of battles with NIMBYists and, and, and zoning regulations and uh, the, the fights you would have are endless. That's to, to, to change one aspect of it. And people say, no, we're going we're gonna to change the way we fly and we're going to put in high-speed rail transport and we're going to have an all-electric infrastructure with no natural gas plants or coal plants. And we don't like nuclear either, by the way. It, it, it's just it's comical when you think of it that... The, the, that people think that that's realistic, and I, and I think it, that's these are the, the the chickens coming home to roost from a decade of people saying, oh yeah, all we have to do is is be more enthusiastic about switching to renewables. Then you see people that are actually thinking about it, going, well, it's it, it's not going to happen unless we unless we rewire the whole system. And their their solution, these people, is to have government do it all, which I think, if you want to see how that works, you just go read about the old uh, Soviet Union. Got a question for you. I want your uh, thoughts on it. And this is something that I did not uh, send you a link on or give you a bullet point to prepare for. So you may not know much about it because it's about the uh, Chapter 11 bankruptcies. Have you been following some of these bankruptcies with these companies? Yep. So it's interesting because, you know, the Chapter 11 is different than Chapter 13. Chapter 11 is a reorganization. And it protects the personal salaries. So when you start seeing these executives that are getting millions of dollars and, and protection and they're getting paid and all, and these service companies are not getting paid. And in some cases, you know, state royalties are not getting paid. So kids and educations and type things are not getting, you know, the framework can be done there quite easy. Yet they're still able to operate in business as a company. And then in some cases now they're getting, you know, f- federal stimulus money to go to go operate. To. I just I, I see where the Chapter 11 is going to be like a little bit of a wild card in this whole thing. Because if companies are able to restructure, not pay service companies, but yet pay executives that are going to get paid regardless. So they, they don't have a skin in the game now. They don't have skin in the game. They're they're a guaranteed checker. And when you're a guaranteed checker versus, you know, like a 
one of the old school oil people who had skin in the game, that's a big difference. That's a big difference. So I think that's going to be a wild card coming up here in the next year. I, I don't remember the, the, the bankruptcies being this much of an issue. No, they're, they're, they're big. I do follow them, and, and I've seen some really appalling things, too, like companies paying out a bunch of bonuses and then declaring Chapter 11 weeks later. And, and so there's, that's kind of a, a two, two-pronged issue, or there's two very serious repercussions that come out of that. One is that when the general public sees that stuff and they see those, those headlines, they get pretty wild, and I don't blame them. And it's kind of part of the problem that goes back to, like, even the financial crisis when people got so upset with Wall Street you guys pull all these shenanigans, you rake in all this money, and then when it all goes sideways, you, you just skip out of town with all the loot, and nobody goes to jail, and nothing bad happens. You just pop up somewhere else again, and people get livid at that. And that's one of the reasons that I think we see this rise in the youth of, of cynicism, and they're saying, we don't trust anything you guys say. We don't trust big companies, except maybe Apple and Tesla for some reason. But... Um, they, uh, the rest of them, they just say, you guys are all just self-serving, greedy um, people that don't do anything, and you never, never seem to lose. And, and, and I think that Chapter 11 is, is part of, part of that uh, issue, that it's causing much bigger problems just from a general sentimentality out there. You see all of these people that are actually willing to listen to Bernie Sanders. And I think one of the reasons is, oh, yeah, okay, well, I've had enough of watching these guys pull, up, pull these stunts decade after decade and nothing happens to them so i think that there's there's big repercussions there for, on that side on the on the business side i don't i don't know what it'll mean for production because that's one thing that seems weird to us is that there have been companies that have gone into chapter 11 a couple of times since 2014 and uh, i won't say any names but i know that they 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 um they run up a bunch of debt they crank up their production to whatever level they want they go bankrupt essentially can't pay their bills they restructure, the, the shareholders get wiped out, the debt holders become the equity holders, and then they do it again. And then they run up the debt, and now they're in trouble again. But the production base is still remains. That doesn't go away. It's not like that That will just change hands on, on some financial terms, which we don't know what they are, but they'll go to someone, and the production will stay there. There's a, an analogy that we use at work all the time. We call it the golf course syndrome where someone comes in and develops a golf course and they blow their brains out and they spend $15 million and they, uh, they build a beautiful clubhouse and it's a great course and they can't make a return and it goes bankrupt and then somebody else buys the golf course for pennies on the dollar and then they make money. And this just seems to go on over and over and over again in different ways in different industries. And this sort of the same thing in the oil patch. All of these bankruptcies, are, they're not going to dent production. They're just going to go into somebody else's hands. And ironically... When they switch hands, then the new entity is better capitalized, so then they can get back on their growth curve again, <laughs> which they seem to keep doing uh, relentlessly. But maybe maybe they, they they have learned their lessons this time around, and they're just going to go kind of more of a return model rather than a growth model. But that's to be determined. But at the end of the day, the Chapter 11s don't seem to do much to production. It just changes the hands of, of who controls those reserves. Well, and it does have a ripple through the service companies, too, and some of the smaller operators and that sort of thing. Yeah, that's true. They get half. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, when yeah. they don't, you know, when they're relying on getting paid and all of a sudden they don't get paid or, you know, they're not part of the restructure package, to a smaller company, that could be the end of them. You know, that's, that. you know, yeah. especially in oil and gas, because there are a lot of companies in oil and gas that just serve one master, and that's it. You know, they, yeah. got, they got one oil company yeah. that keeps them and their 10 employees more than enough business to handle, 
And if that goes away yeah, overnight, you know. Yeah, I shouldn't have downplayed the significance of that because we see that a lot up here too. There's a lot of people that have built up very decent businesses over the past 10 or 20 years and they're, they're being wiped out for those very reasons. Like you say, that the, uh, the, the, some people get paid and some don't and it's the little guys that don't get paid that can't do much about it. So with no leverage, very sad. Yeah, there you go. That's the way it works. So anyway, I'll appreciate the time today. What do you got? What are you working on these days? What's going on? Public Energy Number One or the BOE Report? And make sure you plug your book, which is available at Am. It's still available at Amazon oh, and Barnes and Noble. Still is. Yep. Okay. Still a great book. Yep. No, uh, it's uh, yeah, it, it's um, yeah. I hope people read it. It's just tried to shed, shed a different light on the energy industry. Try to cut through. The, the nonsense that we see in the media, the mainstream media every day, I hate using that term, but it's kind of true, that they're, the, the speed that which these big news organizations are forced to put out articles means that they don't understand what they're talking about most of the time. So the book is to try and explain that to people, that uh, what you're reading in the news is, 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 is a bad interpretation of reality. So try and give somebody that. And uh, other than that, just trying to find ways to write about this crazy industry. <laughs> it's hard to say where it's going to go, but... Um, there's a lot of good people in it and we're providing the service that keeps everybody going and, and people need to realize that. And I think they're going to start realizing that. So that as these big grand green schemes don't pan out, people are going to realize that we, we have to, we have to, we can't kill the golden goose. So that's part of my job to try and keep the golden goose alive. <laughs>